welcome to knowing nature the podcast all about exploring and engaging with the natural world i'm victor and in this episode i'm going to be talking about how to make the most of your pond ponds have huge environmental and wildlife value they store water and gradually release it into the surrounding area and they're excellent habitat for many animals to live and breed in as well as providing water to drink for many birds and other species they're also a really excellent way to have encounters with wildlife. They support a wide range of biodiversity, and it makes it a really rewarding habitat to observe for kids who are not used to being very patient. Pond invertebrates are also very easy to catch and to look at, and larger animals like ducks, fish, frogs, and other amphibians are really charismatic inhabitants. In recent years, a lot of schools have put in ponds or other water features into their school grounds in order to support wildlife, Often what I hear is that teachers aren't really sure how to go about making use of their pond uh, or they're not sure what the creatures are that they find. And, and so they tend to not use it very much, even though their school might have one. And so in this episode, what I'm going to do is go through all different aspects of how to make use of a pond, starting with how to set up a wildlife pond for use with kids or with school groups. And I'll be sharing some ideas on how you might think about structuring lessons around a pond. First off, how to set up a wildlife pond for educational use. Now this can be a daunting task, but it really doesn't have to be. Ponds don't need to be large or in the ground. Raised ponds can be built on concrete play areas. So if your schoolyard is completely paved over, even then you can have a pond. But there are some considerations if you want to make the most of a pond after having spent the time and resources to build one. Number one, size is not critical for a wildlife pond, but bigger is better. And that's because larger ponds are more stable. Uh, the temperature range across the day will just fluctuate more slowly, which is a good thing because a lot of wildlife doesn't respond very well to really big changes in temperature. Larger ponds also provide more places for wildlife to hide in, and that means that any population of a species is less likely to all be eaten by a predator. So if you've got a tiny pond that can maybe only support a few dragonfly larvae, if a bird comes down and eats your two dragonfly larvae, then that might be it for your population in your small pond. But if you've got a larger pond, there's more hiding spaces, and that means that a bird might come down and eat some of the insects, but because there's all those hiding places, probably some will still be in there somewhere. Depth can be important in places which get particularly cold in winter. So in the southern part of the United Kingdom, uh, 50 centimeters is more than enough to prevent your pond from freezing uh, top to bottom over the winter. And that's really more important if your pond is going to have fish in it or if you're a bit more worried about larger wildlife. Make sure your pond is deep enough that it won't freeze over winter. Now, check with local gardening sites. Um, they often have quite good advice for the depth that your pond needs to be to prevent it completely freezing. Now, where the size of your pond does matter is when you're using it with groups of kids. If it's just your home pond, it can be really any size. It can be as small as just a bucket. But if you're going to be working with groups of any size, really consider how big are the groups that you're going to be working with. If you're going to be working with whole classes of 30 kids, then plan your pond to be big enough to have an access area 
that's big enough for at least six to eight people at a time. And that way your class can be in groups, maybe five groups, while allowing one or two supervising adults to also be at the pond at a time. So you'll have one student from each group plus one or two adults. That means that you need room for roughly six to eight people to be able to stand at the edge of the pond with enough space to move around comfortably uh, while having while holding on to equipment. The next factor to think about is location. The best place to put your pond is an area that's going to be partly shaded, um, preferably shaded from the afternoon sun. And what that's going to do, particularly if it's a small pond, is really reduce those temperature swings through the day. Having a bit of shade in your pond is also going to reduce the growth of algae, which can quickly take over, especially in very new ponds. And if your pond is shaded by a tree, do make sure that your pond is not directly under the tree, because what you, you do not want is to have all those autumn leaves falling into quite a small pond, because what that can do is, number one, it, your pond will quickly fill up with leaves and organic matter, and that'll mean that you'll need to scoop out mud from your pond every few years to keep it from just filling up. The other problem with that is all of those leaves add a lot of nutrients into the water over the winter, and that means the next spring you could end up with a really big bloom of algae um, because of all the extra nitrogen and other nutrients that those rotting leaves have added into the pond. The decay of those leaves also uses up oxygen in the water, so if you get a sudden big influx of leaves in the autumn, that can really take out a lot of oxygen, particularly near the bottom, and that can be harmful for some of the creatures that might be trying to overwinter down at the bottom, things like frogs. Third factor to think about, do you want a pond that's in the ground or do you want a raised pond? Now raised ponds are really great because they're a lot more accessible. Depending on the height, it can be safely used by even very young children, and also they're accessible for people who are in wheelchairs and whose mobility is a bit more restricted. So somewhere around 50 centimeters is a pretty good minimum height. What that'll do is it'll give you a balance of the depth of water of the pond and the height of the pond being easily accessible for a broad age range of kids. Make sure you use a really sturdy material. So don't just purchase um, a raised bed or a planter and put a pond liner in it. Uh, partly because water is much heavier than you think, and so if the edges aren't sturdy enough, you could end up with it bowing or breaking. But also what I would recommend is make sure that the walls of your pond are strong enough that you could sit on them. And that just makes it more comfortable to facilitate pond dipping if you're an adult. You can sit next to the children while they're making use of the pond. Now to go along with that, make sure the pond is also going to have a rim that's wide enough to put specimen trays on and, and other resources and also to sit on. So think about somewhere around uh, 30 centimeters as a, a width. Ponds that are built into the ground are going to be much more natural looking and it's also much easier for them to be a bigger size. It's also easier for them to host a wide range of wildlife and that's because a pond that's in the ground can be accessed by amphibians. A raised pond that's raised on all sides uh, is basically inaccessible to things like frogs and newts because they just can't climb up and then get in to lay their eggs. Now it is possible to have a raised pond that can be accessed by amphibians 
but that will involve making a bank up at least one edge so that an amphibian has like a ramp to access the pond in and you'll want that that bank to be planted up with some kind of vegetation that's going to provide cover for the amphibian so that they feel safe to go into your pond um, and so that they don't get picked off by birds and things. Now with the raised pond, the great thing is that you can access the pond from all the way around the edge, depending on how you've planted it. But in a pond that's built into the ground, you're going to need to consider how kids are going to access the pond. So with these, planted banks are not good, and that's because as the kids use the pond, they're going to trample the, the plants and it's going to become muddy and that can become slippery and it can become a bit of a hazard. Having gravelly areas are along the edge is a little bit better because it's less messy, it's a bit less slippery for people. But the problem with a gravel bank is that that gravel is going to work its way into the pond. And that means that you're going to have to top up the gravel and also your pond is going to be gradually filling up. So you'll need to scoop things out. If you use a mix of gravels and maybe larger flatter rocks, that's a bit better. Uh, and that's because what kids will do in that setting is they'll tend to use the larger flat stones. Think of yourself if you've ever been around the edge of a lake or if you've been down to the seaside, um, you'll hop onto those larger rocks in order to look into the water. So if you provide large flat rocks, kids will tend to stand on those larger flat stones because they just feel more stable. And in fact, they will be more stable. And that means that you're also going to have less gravel slipping into the pond. If you're going to go this route, choose rough large stones so that you get a bit more grip on it. So don't pick a really smooth river stone or something like that. Now, decking probably is going to provide the best access for you. And that's because it's going to be really stable. It's not going to slip into the pond. And the good thing about decking is also it can be built out over the water. And that will allow you to access deeper areas of the pond without needing to actually wade into the pond. Uh, and that'll reduce disturbance as well. Wooden decking is fine, but eventually it will need replacing. So you might want to think about that and, and make sure you've got budget for that. You can also get recycled plastic faux wood and this can be much longer lasting it comes in non-slip surfacing which is pretty good but it's quite a durable surface so consider using that as well now in terms of the design of your decking uh, your decking should only be slightly higher than the maximum height that your pond will reach if you build your deck too high up, it can make it really difficult to reach the pond and a bit more hazardous because you're going to need to lean out over the water more. There's a greater risk of just losing your balance and falling in. If you build your deck too low, then you can potentially have a problem of if you get a period of really high rainfall, the water level could rise up and you could end up with a flooded deck that, again, you can't really access. So make sure that the height of your decking is going to be not much higher than the maximum height that your pond is going to get. So let's talk a little bit about safety, because I know this is something that a lot of teachers and adults are often very concerned about. So between 1995 and 2005, the Royal Society for Prevention of Accidents recorded 147 children under the age of six drowned in and around homes. This included ponds, baths, containers and swimming pools 147 children is way too many children but it's important to remember that that is over the course of an entire decade so the risk of this happening 
is very, very, very low. And when you drill into these numbers a little bit more, what you find is that the risk of drowning in a pond was just as high as drowning in a bath. The really important thing to note was the ages of the children who drowned in these different settings. So what they found was that um, the biggest risk of drowning in a pond was in toddlers, so children aged one or two. And that's where they're becoming more mobile, so they can move around, they can get to a pond, but they maybe don't have the motor skills to get themselves out of a pond if they've fallen in. Now the surest safety precaution is to supervise children of around that age. Make sure you're keeping an eye on them if there's a body of water around, if there's a pond around. And what I would say is that spending time with children around ponds and supporting the development of motor skills and demonstrating how to evaluate the risk of moving around different surfaces around a pond or other body of water is probably better for keeping them safer long term because it's going to be teaching them how to keep themselves safe when they are more independent. So after supervision, the next way to reduce this risk of drowning is designing your pond for safe access. So let's talk about railings and other safety measures. First off, in the UK there is no government or health and safety executive requirement for a pond to be fenced off. So there is no legal requirement for you to have your pond be completely fenced off. That being said, check your regulations locally because they may be different. But here are some things to think about when you're thinking about fencing off a pond. First off is that uh, fencing can produce its own hazards. Standing on a railing or climbing up a railing could mean that kids fall from a higher height. And depending on how your fencing is built, they might have a risk of sort of flipping over the top of a fence and potentially hitting their head. They're going to be hitting the pond or the water from a higher height, and that could be more risky as well. Fencing also makes it more difficult for adults and others to come and help the person who's fallen in the pond. So if you are going to be adding a fencing, please really carefully consider those. Make sure your fencing is very sturdy because kids will climb up on that fence. Make sure it's going to be able to support them. If there is a fence, make sure there is some easy way for an adult to access that pond in case someone has fallen in the pond so the fence doesn't become a barrier to helping them. The next thing is mesh covering or grates. Uh, nowadays you can get uh, grating that sort of goes over the top of a water feature. Sometimes it's just under the surface so that it's very inconspicuous. But these again can produce their own hazards. Uh, falling onto the grate could itself cause injury. If there's damage to the grating or mesh, that could become a risk of trapping feet or fingers. Having a grate there could also provide a false sense of security and could encourage riskier behavior. So imagine children walking on the grate because it's like walking on water. Similar to how fences could encourage riskier behavior like climbing up on top of a fence or sitting on the fence is probably riskier than sitting on the edge of the deck. The other thing to think about is the fact that your safety measures are going to make your pond more difficult to use. And the more difficult your pond is to use, the less likely you are to actually use it. So the way I would recommend thinking about this is that your primary safety measure should be supervision. 
if there are very young kids who regularly access the area, and I'm, I'm talking about toddler age, um, then think about how much adult supervision is there going to be in that area. Kids should also learn how to monitor their own risk. And school is actually a really good place to do this, as there are a lot of adults around to support this. So there are adults who are there to pull kids out of the water who might be too panicked to just stand up. There's lots of teachers there in the schoolyard to monitor roughhousing near the water. And if you are building a pond to use in a school, then really your design should eliminate or mitigate all of the really extreme risks. So the real risks of drowning around any body of water comes when that body of water is really deep or if it's really fast flowing, neither of which should be the case for your school pond. Again, your pond doesn't need to be particularly deep to keep it from freezing. And what I would recommend is that you keep your pond, which is going to be used for educational purposes, um, at a depth where all you need to do is stand up in the pond and walk out. And that means that you don't need to know how to swim in order to get out of the pond. You just need to stand up and walk out. The next big concern that a lot of adults will have is disease and infections. You know, they're worried about um, mud and mosquitoes. And there there is some of this, but again, the risk from, but the risk of this is quite low in the UK and in North America. Infections can occur from contact with untreated water, which is what you're going to have in a wildlife pond. But if you practice good hygiene, the risk is very low. So this is just washing your hands after you use the pond, particularly if anyone's going to be eating. And if you've got any cuts or open wounds on your hands, uh, make sure it's covered with a waterproof plaster or bandage or maybe a waterproof glove uh, before you go pond dipping. There is also some risk of zoonosis when working around a pond. And a zoonosis is a disease that is just naturally present in an animal population, but which can also infect humans. The one that's most commonly associated with ponds is one called Viles disease or leptospirosis. Now leptospirosis is caused by a bacteria that can be transmitted in rat urine. So if you've got rats in the area that might come and drink from the pond, it's possible that bacteria from them will make their way into the pond and then you could get an infection from that. But risk of this is extremely low. Again, from the Royal Society of Prevention of Accidents, between 1996 and 2006, there were never more than 60 cases in a year. So the risk is extremely low and is most often associated with swimming in that body of water. And again, just standard basic good hygiene vastly reduces this already really low risk. So wash your hands with soap and water and use waterproof bandages or plasters or waterproof gloves if you're pond dipping and you've got cuts or wounds on your hands. But I'll put uh, links to resources about this down in the show notes key takeaway is that the risk of getting infection from using a pond is very low if you practice good hygiene. Next concern is mosquitoes. So if you live in an area where mosquito-borne diseases are a concern, what you can do is add a fountain or a pump to the pond somewhere and what that will do is just give your pond some water circulation and that will really reduce 
mosquitoes breeding in your pond because mosquitoes thrive really in uh, calm still water and adding a fountain or pump um, can provide enough water movement to really cut down on mosquito breeding. The next thing that you can do is add fish because fish love to eat mosquito larvae is excellent food for them. Now adding fish raises a little bit of controversy when we're talking about wildlife ponds. A lot of places will say that if you add fish to a pond they will eat all the other invertebrates and you'll end up with nothing else in the pond. And this is not true if your pond is well designed and it hasn't been overstocked. So let's move on to talking about plants and wildlife in and around your pond. Most insects and wildlife that are going to live in your pond will arrive very quickly on their own. And that's because a lot of them are the larvae of flying insects or things like diving beetles and water boatmen. Those are also insects that can actually fly and they look for new bodies of water to live in. So all of those will arrive on their own. In terms of animals that in terms of animals that you may want to purchase and add to your pond, what I would suggest is adding small native freshwater fish uh, a few months after first setting up your pond. You, you want to give your pond some time for the nutrient cycles to get a little bit established, invertebrate populations to get a little bit established before you add in your freshwater fish. Just like if you were setting up an aquarium, it's good practice to let your aquarium just cycle through for a few days or a few weeks um, so it's a bit more established before you add in any livestock any animals so in order to keep your small native freshwater fish from eating everything you need to make sure that your pond has a good amount of submerged plants with lots of leaves very often these are sold as oxygenating plants and that's because um, the vast majority of the plant, the stems and a lot of the leaves, they're under the water. And so when those plants are photosynthesizing, the waste oxygen gets released out into the water, hence oxygenating plants. What you're looking for in particular are things with lots of small leaves because those are going to provide uh, shelter for all of those invertebrates in your pond from those fish. They also provide shelter for young fish and tadpoles to hide from the big fish. Here in the UK, things like hornwort or pondweeds work very well. So when you are stocking your pond with fish, start with only a few, and then over time, over the years, the population should breed and eventually reach whatever population size your particular pond can support. You should not need to feed the fish. They should be able to survive on the invertebrates and the plant life that naturally live in your pond. The other thing about feeding the fish is that that's going to add significant amounts of nutrients into your pond. That can produce a lot of algal growth and it can also make your pond smell as you're going to end up with a lot of fish waste in the pond, lots of fish poop. And it could be more than the invertebrates can handle. And particularly because most wildlife ponds are not going to have some kind of filter and you're going to end up with a build of nitrates and ammonia in the pond which over time can become toxic so you should not need to feed your fish if you really want frogs and newts and other amphibians in your pond do not be tempted to go out and buy them frogs and newts should arrive on their own if your area is suitable if you want to encourage them 
plant things around at least part of your pond if it's one that's in the ground things like reeds irises water mint other plants which thrive in the soggy margins of a pond those will provide really good cover for amphibians and again that's going to mean that they are going to feel uh, safe enough to access your pond and give them protection from predators and again make sure that some areas around your pond uh, are going to be left more or less undisturbed and this will allow those quiet corridors and also quiet places where these animals can take shelter when your kids are investigating the pond. Another very important reason to not try and purchase um, amphibians or to bring them from one pond to another is that frogs and other amphibians are globally facing a problem of a few different diseases. Um, there's ranavirus, a virus which affects frogs that's been spreading through wild populations, and also chytrid fungus is a, a fungal infection that's been a real problem for amphibian populations around the world. And moving frogs and other amphibians from one place to the next can spread that infection around. So if you really want frogs and newts, best practice is to set up a really great habitat for them and eventually hopefully they'll come to you on their own. The other thing to think about is that if you're needing to add these frogs and amphibians into your pond uh, because they're not arriving on your own is that if those animals are then breeding in your pond in the winter when they're coming out of your pond and looking for places to shelter if those animals haven't come to your pond on their own, it probably means that there isn't sufficient shelter in the area for them. So while you might have a few happy amphibians in your pond and around your pond, all of the young that they're having might not be surviving very well. So with amphibians, please, please, please allow them to arrive in your pond on their own. So you set up a lovely wildlife pond. Next step, how do you use it? As with working with any other natural area, familiarity with your pond is going to help you out a lot in figuring out what are the best ways to use your pond. And that's because each pond is going to have a different mix of wildlife, you're going to have a different mix of plants and little microhabitats, and so your pond might not necessarily lend itself very well to the topics that I'm going to suggest. First off, if you can, maybe consider involving kids and students in the whole design process. This is a really great way to explore habitats because you're creating one. And that means you need to really think about all the different components of the habitat, what creatures you want to live in that pond, and how can you alter the design to really suit that particular type of animal. On that note, ponds are really great for exploring microhabitats, these smaller areas with special conditions inside that pond. And that's because pond invertebrates are often really strongly associated with particular areas. So you'll have insects that really thrive in thickly planted areas. You'll have invertebrates living down at the bottom of the pond in the substrate. And what this means is that if you've got a really well orchestrated pond dip where you've got, you know, separate containers for creatures collected from these very specific areas of the pond, you can end up with this really great comparison of what communities of animals live in these different areas of the pond. Next topic people often try to do is classification, and that's one that I find can be a little bit more difficult, and that's because 
a lot of the invertebrates that you find in a pond are going to tend to be insects. They're also going to be much smaller than invertebrates that you find in terrestrial habitats, which makes them a bit more difficult to pick out key characteristics that you might classify invertebrates based on. That being said, it is doable if your kids have enough patience and if you've got access to some kind of magnification. But with this topic, consider what you tend to find most often in your pond. It may be that you find enough variety of wildlife with really obvious observable characteristics that will allow you to tackle classification. Ponds can also be a really excellent challenge for use in maths or geography in terms of making measurements and using angles in order to draw a map. Um, particularly with larger in-ground ponds, they tend to be organic shapes, which will require lots of measurements to get a really accurate picture of. And with a larger pond, needing to go around the circumference of the pond um, is a really interesting challenge as well. If your pond's been in the area for long enough, you might be able to compare the measurements in pictures that your kids have produced with those from aerial footage or from Google Maps. And if you can do that, then you might be able to consider what are the pros and cons of doing mapping manually from the ground uh, versus using aerial or satellite imagery. Think about the limitations of each. Is there vegetation that gets in the way, like trees that might block views of the ponds from, from the air? And does mapping from the ground give you a better feel from what the conditions are like? Art is another really great topic. The habitat tends to have this really lots of soft edges with lots of planting. Um, lends itself to exploring different techniques with those softer, looser mediums like watercolors or pastels. Uh, you might want to look at the techniques that landscape artists use and then apply those in depicting your, your pond. You can also use them to do more detailed work doing maybe portraits of plants and their different parts or portraits of uh, invertebrates that your class has found. So there's opportunity there for doing things like botanical illustration or really technical drawings. Now, whatever topic you are thinking of, using your pond for, uh, here are some considerations for how to go about planning your lessons. First thing to think about, remember that it's always really super exciting the first time you get to go around a pond. So if your groups tend to not regularly use a pond or other wild spaces, when they first get to the area, give them five minutes or so just to explore and be excited about being in that area within reason to help get that initial lots of energy out. At that point, you can then refocus them on whatever the specific task is that you, you have for them. If your classes, again, tend to not work with live creatures or in natural environments very often, then wanting them to do very structured collection from specific microhabitats is going to be really, really difficult for you. Um, and that's because, again, in a pond, you end up with these very distinct areas. And whatever group gets assigned to collect from the top of the pond, from the surface of the pond, they're not going to find very much. And it's going to be boring and a bit disappointing from them because they will end up with a mostly empty tray. And so what the group will do to kind of compensate for that is they'll kind of sneakily collect things from different areas because they want to find something. And that means that if your 
hoping to spot these really distinct communities of, of animals. Everything's going to get a bit mixed up and, and the results aren't going to be as accurate as they could be. If you do still want to go for a structured collection, what I want, would suggest is go for um, high yield areas, places in the pond where you're almost guaranteed to find something. So maybe one group could look for animals around plants. One group could look for animals living near the bottom of the pond. And one group could use their net through the whole water column, including the surface, rather than really narrowing it down to you know, top of the pond, middle of the pond, bottom of the pond, near the plants. If it's too specific, then one or two of the groups are going to get a bit disappointed. A different way of approaching the topic of microhabitats, you can kind of fudge things a little bit by observing the animal's behavior inside of a container. So you'll find that um, animals that would tend to live around the plants in the pond, if you've got small bits of stems and plants in the container, those animals will tend to cling to those stems and plants. Others will tend to swim in circles. Others will just sit at the bottom of whatever the container is. And this tends to be similar behavior to what you would see in their natural habitat. So you can kind of use that as a, as a little fudge if you want them to still be thinking of microhabitats, but collect animals from anywhere in the pond. But consider reserving really highly structured collection for older students or for groups which work in natural environments a bit more frequently. They'll be better able to draw excitement from learning more about the details of that habitat. If your group is not so used to working in natural spaces, then it might be more beneficial and productive to plan for them to be doing more freeform exploration of the space. And that's because they're going to be getting a lot of excitement just from being outdoors in that natural space. So I hope this episode has given you some ideas for how you might build or make the most of your wildlife pond. I think that after most of us having been locked indoors for so long, making the most of those outdoor spaces can be a real benefit as we go into this next school year. So as always, if you have any questions or comments, you can email them to us. Our email address is knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com. You'll find full show notes. You'll find full show notes at knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at KN underscore podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.